0: Good afternoon and welcome back to another edition of Hans' podcast where we aim to bring the best minds in the Web3 space on each week uh, to talk about how they built, grow and manage their protocols as a guiding light for the next generation of protocol builders. Uh, Today I'm recording with Mark Zubov, uh, the founder of Islamic finance neobank Imanpay uh, and more recently Islamic DeFi protocol Uma Finance uh, who's joining me from very sunny Dubai. How are you going Mark?
1: Hi, Archie. Yeah, doing great. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Would you like to just give, like, sort of, A, first, like, a, a bit of background into yourself? And then, I think, firstly, a bit of background into Islamic finance and sort of how, how that is different from what we know in the West. Uh, and then yeah. also sort of the solutions that you began building for that with the ManPay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, just to give you some background about myself, um, I started on traditional finance worked in investment banking in the US first, uh, but then I was always interested, I guess, really intrigued about emerging markets. Uh, so I joined a family office that was investing in Central Asia and Eastern Europe, ended up in Uzbekistan about four years ago, uh, did that for about a year or so, and then um, joined another investment firm, uh, also focused on emerging markets. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my background. And actually, while I was spending time in Central Asia, we were looking at some investment opportunities in the banking sector, looking at consumer finance specifically. And uh, what I found particularly interesting is the fact that uh, the credit penetration in Uzbekistan is very low. It's like less than, I think, 5% of the population um, at that point ever borrowed from banks or invested in deposits. Um, So I started to dig into that problem and realized that one of the main reasons uh, of that low credit penetration is the fact that there are no Islamic financial products available in the market, even though, um, you know, 93% of population are Muslims. So yeah, back then I didn't know much about Islamic finance. I mean, I I think I just knew the basics, which is like what most people know, it's like interest is prohibited, right? In Islamic finance, that's basically (laughs) as much as I knew back then. Um, But then yeah, I started studying um, like the basics of Islamic finance, which ended up making a lot of sense for me. If I were to describe Islamic finance in like, the shortest possible ways, like it's all about, uh, justice. Um, but like the core, I would say the core tenets of Islamic finance are one, it's all about risk sharing versus risk transfer. So for example, basically the lender has to have a skin in the game, right? Both parties involved in transaction, like borrower and the lender, uh, have to have it, complete information about the transaction and the lender you can actually only make money if that benefits uh, the borrower, right? So all the transactions, like all the investments are structured uh, on the basis of profit sharing, right? So, you know, like the way a traditional bank works, you know, you, you go to a bank, deposit money, you get paid interest. The way an Islamic bank works, you deposit the money, bank generates profits and then shares those profits with you. So, That's the first principle. The second principle, it's all about the real economy, right? So as opposed to, you know, essentially financial engineering. So there has to be a one-to-one relationship, you know, between the financial economy and the real economy, right? So everything has to be backed by an asset. Like you cannot just trade money, right? I cannot, uh, you know, give you $10 and ask you for $12 back. Uh, Everything has to be backed by an asset, which is why, like, for example, a credit card is by default non sharia compliant. Um, and yeah, I think the third principle is just, it encourages, um, investment in projects that bring value to the society that are not harmful for the society. So basically it doesn't allow investments in, you know, like alcohol companies or in gambling in anything that's detrimental, um, to the society. so yeah, those are really, I, th- I would say the basics of Islamic finance. Is, it's more complex than that. Um, but yeah, again, it's, it's all about the fairness. It's all about the lender having skin in the game. Um, and it's basically about the justice. Um, so I think, yeah, like just studying the Islamic finance principle did like make sense to me. I realized that actually it just a more sustainable, let's say finance financial system. You know, if you believe, like, if you look at the principles in this, it doesn't have to be limited to Muslims, but then also, I guess, coming from traditional finance background and also looking at everything from like demographic lens, uh, made me realize sort of the scale of the opportunity, right? You see that, you know, the Muslim population today, it's about, you know, 25%, give or take of global population. And it's the fastest growing demographic. It's the youngest demographic It's the fastest growing one. Uh, while Islamic finance penetration today, it's 1%. It's only 1%, right? So you know that there is at least a 25x potential there and potentially more than that because, again, Islamic finance doesn't have to be limited um, to Muslims.
0: Yeah. And then can you you go into a bit about sort of the Islamic finance solutions that you guys are building with ManPay?
1: Yeah, so Iman is, uh, Iman ImanPay is actually one of our products. Uh, so we have Iman Invest, which is the investment product. We have Iman Pay, which is essentially the BNPL solution. But what, what you're trying to build is to build an Islamic uh, neobank. So similar to, you know, like Revolut or like uh, Tinkoff or any of those other financial super apps, but focused on uh, Islamic finance. And then, yeah, what we've done so far, we have launched our BNPL solution, which is like Sharia compliant BNPL and an investment product. So that's the way it works, we have investors on one side who provide liquidity, and then you have uh, you know, people who buy stuff on installment in a sharia compliant way on the other side, right? And it's all structured, uh, you know, using you know principles of Islamic finance. Yeah.
0: So you, you, you delved a bit earlier into sort of your journey coming to Central Asia and deciding to educate yourself a bit more in Islamic finance, at at what point did you sort of decide to take the leap in terms of building in the space and particularly building a digital product in the space as well Is quite interesting?
1: Um, I think the idea, we came up with the idea about three years ago. And then, you know, I was, I had a co-founder who was actually a colleague of mine um, at the family office. So we sort of, you know, took us some time to figure out how we could build this, how we could structure the product. But essentially yeah, I started working on this. I think early on it was kind of like a side project, because we still had our day jobs. Um, and but then eventually, once we realized, I guess the opportunity, once we realized that actually we did have, um, you know, I would say a very relevant background because I had a bit of experience working in fintech lenders in other markets. So I kind of had a basic understanding of what kind of business model can work in a place like Uzbekistan and that, you know, in a place like Pakistan or Bangladesh. So, um, I think, yeah, having that relevant background, seeing the big opportunity, uh, you know, we started working on this and then eventually, you know, once we raised some funding, that's really made when uh, we made a move to uh, focus on this like full-time.
0: Yeah, and and in that short time, you've made like a massive amount of traction uh, with the Amman, so congratulations. But then nice. at some point down the road, uh, you decided to go even even further beyond a uh, digital fintech style Islamic finance and decided to bring it into the world of DeFi with Umar Finance, what prompted that even more sort of drastic move?
1: Yeah, good question. Well, I think actually, um, I mean, I've been in the crypto space, I think for the last five years um, and been always, I mean, all, I was already thinking about doing something in the space even before I started working in the month. It's not really like... I was working in Iman and I was like thinking what, what we could do in crypto. It's more like, I've been in crypto for a few years, um, but it took me some time to figure out what could make sense considering my background um, and also basically considering like what I see, the opportunities I see in the market. Yeah, you know, early on, I was just interested in Bitcoin. I think, I mean, I'm still super interested in Bitcoin, I think, uh, because, you know, it's in has its own place in the crypto ecosystem, but I think, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been uh, exploring DeFi, you know, playing around with different protocols. Um, and I mean, obviously, I've been quite fascinated about the technology, but then I've uh, been quite, I guess, disappointed about the lack of real-world use cases. You know, if you kind of leave your crypto bubble, you, you see that, like, people outside of the crypto bubble have, don't get to benefit the, of the amazing, don't get to experience the you know, DeFi technology, right? <laughs> so I think that's kind of where I was coming from, you know, obviously having an experience in Islamic finance, having an experience in fintech lending having experience in DeFi and traditional finance emerging markets. Um, That's all that sort of culminated in, you know, in this idea of building, building UMA, UMA finance.
0: Yeah. You're obviously attacking a very interesting problem space, right? And you've done exceptionally well. I mean, firstly, with Iman Invest, as I sort of alluded to earlier, what what, what have been sort of the real success factors for you as a team uh, in terms of building trust uh, among that, among that sort of target demographic of yours, building trust in the products that you guys are delivering to them?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that, I mean, building trust, I think is that's the main challenge, uh, I guess, when it comes to any financial business, uh, but especially if you're trying to do something new, right? If you're trying to do something that hasn't really been done before, at least you know, on, a, on a large scale, especially in the market that has, that has no Islamic finance, that has no other, like there is no other Islamic fintech projects or Islamic, any, even no Islamic banks, right? So I think the key for us has been really educating people about the basics of personal finance. And like um, the people, like our clients, our investors, are not necessarily choosing us, you know, like between us and investing through like Robinhood or, you know, investing through another investment platform. Those are the people who keep the cash. Uh, that they save under the mattress, right? They don't invest. So the first step is to educate those people, like why you should not keep the cash under the mattress, which is because because of the inflation, your money is losing value, you know, every day. Um, and then educate people about, about what investment options are out there, right? You can invest in stocks, you can invest in you know, bonds, you can invest in real estate, you can invest through our platform. And then also, and of course, educate people about Islamic finance. Like, what are the the principles of Islamic finance? Um, You know, why Project X is Sharia compliant, Project Y is not Sharia compliant. Um, And I think, yeah, I think for us, most of our early users, most of our early investors, they came in not because of the profits, but because they wanted to contribute to Islamic finance uh, development. So I think... uh, Spending a lot of time, like educating people, conducting different kinds of workshops offline, online, um, that has worked really well. And of course, you know, also working with people who do have, you know, strong reputation in 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 the in the industry, right? So, uh, like, I'm not an expert Islamic finance experts by any means, but uh, there are people who are. So bringing them speakers. Once you have the backing of Sharia scholars, or you know, people who are considered like trustworthy in in the Islamic world, that makes it easier to build a community. Um, and yeah, I think yeah, this something we've done. We, we, it has worked quite well in in Web two, but I think it's even more critical now, like in you know in Web three. I think that's that's the main the main focus for us is really you know building a community based on educating people.
0: Yeah, you, and you, you made a really interesting pointed before about like how a large portion of the upside um that you guys see is the fact that that people have these options available but still uh a lot of them don't trust or don't don't elect to uh participate uh in these credit systems um beyond beyond education how do you sort of acquire customers and and get them into finance
1: I mean, a lot of it, I guess, it's, you know, nothing that's uh, surprising. Like we use social media, you know, Telegram, Instagram, we drive traffic to our app. Uh, we work with uh, influencers as well, but I wouldn't say not like your typical kind of Instagram influencers, but no, more of um, people who have like yeah strong reputation in, in, the, in the space. Uh, we work, we work with Islamic communities, you know, work with mosques, um, you know, and basically, yeah, I mean, for us, it's um, kind of the endless intersection of, you know, Islamic world, right, and then the finance world. So it's uh, working a bit with, you know, with people um, uh, from both of these worlds has worked well. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's basically what was where works has worked well. Uh, referral system has worked well as well, right? If you wanna be, um, it works both on the investment product and the BNPL product, let's say you are a customer, uh, you can refer, you know, your friend as a customer. Both of you get like loyalty points for that. Um, and same on the investment side, I think. Um, especially, you know, in this in these markets like Uzbekistan um, or in you know in broader Muslim world, I think social links are very strong, right? You trust people in your community, right? So if someone that's respected in the community, in like this small, let's say village, you know, people listen to that guy. Um, so I think that's that's really. Um, would say the 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 main strategy behind like the, the main part of community building is working with those with those folks and having them as like iman, you know, UMA representatives.
0: Yeah, and but before I go into a bit more depth about Umar and sort of the DeFi piece of what you guys are doing, I'd, something something I'd be really interested to hear uh, from your insight and from your experience. Do do you see any ways in which sort of that Islamic demographic, because of the different style of financial system do they interact with money or interact with credit in a very different way to say normal people would in in the west or in, in other financial systems
1: yeah i think um well you see, there, there is a couple of things here i mean first i mean generally in emerging markets the level of financial literacy is lower uh, than than you know more developed markets um and that has nothing to do right, with the you know um uh, like islamic world that's the case you know if you go to like Southeast Asia, if you go to Sub-Saharan Africa, generally the level of financial is quite low. I think yeah, the, building a trust is even more is even harder, right? I mean you cannot just rely on the same methods you use like in the Western world, right? Your know, people trust, like if in the Western world you trust, let's say, you know, big brand name, right? In this, in this, like if you hear, okay, it's like Goldman Sachs, okay, Goldman I tried Goldman Sachs. But in, in the West, in, in this world where we are based, actually it's more of um, like social links are more important, I would say. Like you trust leaders in your community. Um, and yeah, I think people, the relationship with the money that people have is that, um, you know, first most of these people don't have, to, you know, savings, right? That's, that's, that's the problem. I mean, it's, they don't really think much about like, how do we, you know, like where do I invest? people think about how do I get by, right? How do I I make it to the next day? Uh, But still, you know, just um, once people understand that the money, like the inflation aspect, once they understand that, you know, keeping their savings under the mattress is not the best long-term strategy, uh, that's how you can like bring those people into the ecosystem, right? And of course, we are excited because in these markets, like the population is very young, right? The average age, for example, in Uzbekistan, I about, think, think about 25 or 26. Um, but, you know, the markets that we are going after next, like Pakistan, the average age is like 18, right? 19. Yeah, wow. So it's the fastest growing demographic, right? That's, that's just starting to enter the financial ecosystem. So, you know, which is, which is like why, you know, we, we are so excited about it.
0: Yeah, and and then now now onto the DeFi uh, bit with Uma Finance. I think you've given me a very good segue because uh, a large part of what you've emphasised throughout, right, has been this very social element of Islamic finance, and obviously uh, in the blockchain space, I guess peer to peer cash was where it all began, and then peer to peer lending is kind of the essence of DeFi. Uh, can you can you speak a bit more as to how you're enabling that with Uma Finance, uh, and then also why why in your opinion? Uh, Islamic finance is, is particularly uh, conducive to decentralized methods
1: of finance. Yeah, uh, so I'll start with that. I mean, I think the thesis that we have is actually sort of twofold, threefold, right? The first is that eventually all the transactions can be put on chain. Like that's one of the core beliefs. And I think uh, if you look at, for example, private debt market, it just makes a lot of sense to put it on, on chain. Because especially if you come from a traditional finance background, if you've done, if you worked on like, you know, securitizing uh, assets, if you understand the securitization process, you uh, you understand like all the inefficiencies in that process. So if you bring some of that on chain, you can you know drastically reduce costs. You can make it more efficient. You can make it more transparent. Um, so that's one belief that we have that eventually like all the private debt will move on chain, you know, whether it's gonna take three years, five years, ten years, twenty years, uh, we think it is gonna happen. Um the second belief is that this is really what it takes to bring institutions into the space. I'm I'm a big fan of obviously permissionless DeFi, right? I like I kinda wanna go through KYC like when I use DeFi protocols. But the problem is that uh most of the worlds are most of the world is not you know, DeFi, DGENs, right? It's, uh, if you want to make it, if you want to make DeFi serious, if you, ma- you want DeFi to take over traditional finance, we need products that bring institutions into the space, which is uh, which I think where our projects like comes in, it makes a lot of sense. And I think um, all like projects like Goldfinch Finance, you know, or Centrifuge or um, Credix, like all of great, great protocols uh, building the space. And the third belief is that Islamic finance is just very unique, right? It's something that... Islamic finance has traditionally been underserved, uh, both in traditional finance and then, obviously, more recently in crypto. But it does allow you to, you know, to innovate both on the liquidity origination side and then uh, on the sort of the lending side. So I think that's, that's the opportunity... Uh, that we see and obviously the fact that we do have an existing you know business we have you know over uh, 50,000, 6,000 active users now and like 10,000 active investors so we have that base that can essentially bring into web3 but yeah I mean to, to yeah the, the idea is that yeah I think eventually we, we want everyone to be able to access different protocols right we want people you know let's say you want to invest regardless of where you are uh, or if you want to get funding in a Sharia-compliant way, we want you to be able to do that through our pro- protocol. That's the idea. I mean, it's of course you know that's going to take years and years and years, but that's uh, that's the vision. And just putting those things on chain, uh, you know, within uh, the securization chain, that's you know just makes it more efficient and also solve some of the like issues with Islamic finance uh, that we have today.
0: Yeah. And an interesting point that you brought up at, at, at the beginning of that, right? Is obviously with Islamic finance, you brought up earlier, uh, real world assets are really at the core of it uh, in terms of collateral and backing and things like that. What what is sort of the the process that you guys are looking towards for uh, securitizing a lot of those real world assets on chain? Because I know I know it's a challenge that a lot of people are, are trying to tackle. Um, but I'm I'm just interested to hear your approach towards it.
1: Yeah, so the way it works essentially, we have obviously we have investors on one side who provide liquidity. On the other side, you have pool managers. Those are uh, fintech lenders. Those are like private debt funds. Um, you know that need debt funding uh, to grow their uh, portfolios. Um, so the way it works, we have to, of course, not unlike like traditional DeFi protocol. You know, you have quite a few like chain elements. At least today, you know that you cannot bring on chain. So you still, you still need to have legal recourse, right? If a, if, if a pool manager defaults, you need to be able to um, claim the collateral. So the way it works in our case, we set up an SPV. Uh, for example, let's say you are FinTech lender uh, based in Uzbekistan, let's say you're man. let's say you have, let's say you're doing BNPL in Indonesia, and you need additional uh, debt funding to grow your loan book. Um, and you, want, you need it in a Sharia compliant way uh, so we set up an SPV, you put up collateral basically as a, you know, into that SPV. So and it's all over collateralized, like it's 130, 150 percent collateralized, which I think is important to understand because, I mean, now um, some people would look at what we are doing and think we are like kind of uncollateralized, under collateralized lending protocol, which I think is, it's not the best space to be in these days after everything that happened. But this is yeah, this is like the opposite of truth, right? It's it's all over collateralized, or it's all collateralized with like real world assets, which is like the real world uh, the the portfolio uh, that the fintech has. And in addition to that, the pool manager also provides some on-chain collateral as like a first loss capital. So in case pool manager defaults, you know we we can first liquidate the on-chain collateral, uh, and then the next step is to go after the. you know the SPV assets in the in this SPV, which you know takes some time, but uh, again because it, because, it, because, because it is all over collateralized, uh, you know the investors are still you know protected. Um, and of course, you know a, a big a big part of what we are doing is conducting due diligence on those pool managers. you know uh, Early on it's gonna be us, the core team conducting due diligence so making sure they have the track record, um, you know making sure they can they can perform. So we'd not, we cannot work with you know with like lenders that don't have uh, the track record. Uh, but then the idea is that eventually this will get more and more decentralized, and anyone can be an underwriter, you know, if you can show that uh, you have a track record. And eventually, we'll move more 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 and more of those elements uh, on chain. Uh, which is I think yeah, that's the vision is that you know eventually everything's going to happen you know, on chain.
0: What well, what was the process like in sort of selling a lot of those? fintech lenders and other pool managers on the concept of on-chain financing. So these these people that are used to very, very traditional methods of uh, financing, how, how did you sort of sell them on bringing that all on-chain and was it a yep. difficult process and what was sort of the common objections and then, yeah, I guess sort of also the reasons why people really warmed to it?
1: Well, I think, to be honest, I think most, most uh, fintech lenders or those pool managers, they don't really care where where the money is coming from, right? If it's DeFi, if it's uh, non-DeFi. For them, it's just an additional funding source. And the fact that it is, they, they get to tap into uh, share-compliant funding, which is you know, quite tricky if you are a fintech lender, uh, I think that's that's what makes people uh, more excited. So, for example, even if you have you might have fintech lenders that have traditionally been funded, uh, let's say by just, you know, debt funds or like retail investors, uh, you know, uh, using fiat. Uh, now they can tap into the crypto ecosystem uh, and the process is just, you know, quite straightforward. Actually, we can, we can theoretically underwrite much faster than uh, some of those like private debt funds. I think yeah, that's that's an easy sell uh, for them. And I mean, you know, for them it's just getting them to how to use like a MetaMask wallet, how to um provide collateral, um and yeah, how to make payments. Like it's you just need to educate those poor managers, but yeah, again it's it's not it's not rocket science. Um and there are already, you know, there've been some um there've been a few protocols that have been able to do that successfully so we'll be kind of you know doing more of the same but then also trying to make it the process also more more efficient
0: yeah uh, what, what did, is there any sort of financial services or products that you, you see that the uma defi product can enable that maybe tra- traditional lenders could not like even maybe like a manvesta manpay can't by virtue of being off chain that you could enable with uma being on chain
1: yeah, no, I think like if you look at the Islamic finance world today, you know, I think it's a $3 trillion industry. Uh, the problem, but there are a few issues with Islamic finance. One is that most of the funding has traditionally has gone towards, let's say, like what you would call a like AAA kind of bonds. So very, I'll say, very low risk projects. Like not much funding has gone towards funding like SMEs, uh, small businesses or fintech lenders. Um, and the reason behind it, I think, is one is that Islamic finance is not that I would' say standardized of an industry right you have different standards in different markets and like the structure transactions is um, more complex it's more costly so some of those like it just doesn't make sense you know if it's like a five million dollar transaction you know it's um, it's a cost prohibitive right to, to structure it um, but in our case you know we can uh, you know, by bringing the securization process on chain, we can actually cut some of those costs and we can also create like, we can create like standard, we can create templates for doing those types of transactions. Um, And at the same time, you know, I think even like the Sharia compliance aspect, you do hear different opinions from different people on, right, like one scholar might say this is Sharia compliant, the other scholar would say, no, this is not Sharia compliant. Uh, But like, even like also bringing the Sharia, uh, like, compliance approval on chain. I think it's it's also, it's a pretty interesting use case uh, for blockchain. Um, because I think now it's also one one issue I have, like, with Islamic finance. I think most of the projects that are doing Islamic finance are essentially just repackaging traditional kind of financial products and making them extra compliant. Um, I just think, um, like, a lot of those project that say they're sharia compliant and not actually actually sharia compliant i mean they've been able to receive a fatwa from one scholar but i mean um once you have the, all the data transparent on chain you know people it's easier for people to tell okay this project is actually sharia compliant versus you know the other projects because i think you know, today like people just use islamic finance as like a marketing you know marketing tool so, i mean especially if you if you come here to you know to dubai you'll see a lot of you know, crypto projects uh just raising money based on just because of their sharia compliance but
0: an interesting point right about sharia compliance like obviously like a, a lot of the philosophy in in this sort of defi space right is code is law yeah. to, to what extent do you believe that you can sort of take that that sharia financing law and make it entirely programmatic so that if 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 a loan or any given loan doesn't doesn't meet those uh sharia bounds yeah uh, it it's disabled um but and then any anything that's compliant immediately goes through and that's all written within the smart contracts so you do you think yeah. that's ever in your future
1: It's in the future I think yeah for sure i think um i mean if if you're doing everything on chain then it's quite straightforward right then you, everything can be in a smart contract and like you can uh it's easier to. Uh, put it in a smart contract. that yes, if it acts, then it's share compliant if y it's not share compliant but in case when you deal with real world assets obviously it's it's more complex right because you have those on on option elements um which is why I think we are quite excited about you know like working with any other projects that that uh, that help that facilitate like bringing some of those uh chain elements on chain like you know I think there are a lot of exciting things like chainlink is working on or you know um other projects uh which can add additional which can help essentially minimize. The level of like the trust in
0: those uh, instruction in those transactions. Yeah, and and to the, to the point about real world assets, you, you also linked that with sort of your institutional focus um, earlier. And and when, when we talk about institutions, obviously a lot of the transactions that you're going to need to enable tend to get quite larger and more sophisticated. Uh, what what do you see as being some sort of the most ambitious ambitious possibilities for lending that UMA might be able to enable?
1: yeah i, I mean the, the idea again the end goal is that everyone right any any person in the world can access the protocol or get funding or invest in a in a cyber compliant manner that's that's sort of the long term goal um when it comes to obviously coming back to the earth and like thinking what can be what can be done in the next you know two three years or five years um i think yeah like bringing the, the fintech lending space, I think it's an obvious, it's like an easy use case because we understand the industry really well. Like we know, uh, we know who we can work with. You know what kind of fintech lenders. Uh, but then, yeah, you can put up, you know, um, Sukuks, which is like an Islamic bond, bonds on chain. Uh, that's a massive market. That's like I think uh, five five hundred billion dollars, so close to a trillion dollars. Um, and especially, like the, I think the high yield segment, high high yield segment of that is, can be particularly intrac- attractive. And the fact that by securing those assets, you can really create different products for different investors. Obviously you have like institutions who are happy with a 5%, 6% yield that, you know, also they're happy with just beating inflation. And then you have like crypto people that, you know, obviously want to take, uh, I wouldn't take like higher risk uh, and then they can, you can package this transaction so they can generate you know, 20, know 20, 30% return, obviously with a with higher risk. Um, so yeah, those are kind of, I think that those are the immediate use cases that I see, um, but that yeah, the idea is that eventually once, once everything can happen on chain, then uh, anyone can access the protocol, can get funding, can invest. So that's, that's the idea.
0: Yeah. And, and you, you, you sort of began enabling access to investment through AmmanPay, right? By enabling people in the Islamic world to do it via mobile and do it digitally. And now you you as a founder would probably have quite a unique perspective on sort of the Web 2 to Web 3 journey running both Iman and Ulmer Finance. Uh, what have been sort of your takeaways in terms of uh, the differences that people have found coming from your Web 2 product to your Web 3 product, how easy it's been to sort of drag them across, um, and then also sort of where, where you see uh, the Islamic world and Web 3 headed as a whole?
1: Yeah for me i think um it's been an interesting journey because as i said i have been in crypto for a few years and but at the same time we focus on building a web2 uh projects but i think it has not been really been so sort of detrimental the fact that i did not like i come from traditional finance i think it's actually um kind of helps when you come you don't come from a, like crypto bubble right you you deal you, like you know what. Average user is actually looking for like you know what Because if you just spend time in crypto, right? You're in this bubble and like it's it's one world But like if you speak to we know that most of the people most of our users are not in crypto yet, right? If you think if you want to bring one billion people into the space, you know We have to get them to First to do like basic things like how do you set up a MetaMask wallet and that's you know how do you create user experience that's you know makes it as easy as possible for you know investors to invest i mean that's that's the biggest question right how do you make it more most user friendly so i think uh, having that yeah having the product in web 2 have working on this with the man and going through the kind of the same process also getting people to you know download the app create an account you know invest i mean this is now in web 3 it's more of more of the same right it's just you need to kind of guide people, need to make it as easy as possible. Um, So, yeah, I think um, the fact that we have done that, we have already gone through the process in Web2 makes it a bit easier. Uh, But still, yeah, of course, we do need to educate people about the basics. I mean, starting, like, what is is Bitcoin? Why, you know, why not all of crypto is a scam, even though, like, 99.9% is a scam? (laughs) And then, how do you set up a MetaMask wallet and then like, why, would he, why, why, sh- why should you even care about crypto, right? Those are the main questions we need, uh, we need to answer. We need, uh, we need to like, that's the main messages we sh- should be able to deliver to people. Um, and then I think when it comes to where Islamic finance is going, um, well, it is growing actually much faster than traditional finance, if you look at it. And I think it's going to continue with the, with the demographic shift that we are undergoing. Um, when it comes to DeFi, I mean, so far, uh, to be honest, I haven't seen too many projects in the like, in Islamic DeFi in some crypto space that I find interesting. I think most of it is just using, again, uh, Sharia Compliance as a marketing tool. Um, I haven't seen too many like serious, let's say, what I would call like builders. Um, but for us, I think, yeah, so some people have this actually negative perception. Office Islamic finance began because we look at it as a, as a marketing tool and just way of repackaging traditional, um, traditional financial instruments. Um, so for us, the big challenge is like, how do we show that you know we are different? Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean that's why you need to again educate people about the basics about money, right? I mean the problem also. <laughs> anyway, like if you think about the fiat system, at the end of the day, it's still it's, it's built on interest, right? <laughs> So that's that's the biggest problem. The money is being created, you know, out of uh, from issuing debt. So that's 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 something I'm also trying to. There's a dilemma I have in my head, right? Because as long as you're still building on like fiat rails, or you know, as long as you're reliant on USD, it's still kind of you're still dealing with interest. So I think that my long-term goal would be definitely to uh, rebuild a financial system on. You know something that's on, on like Bitcoin, right? I think that's how I see uh, the long term. But yeah, that's obviously like that's years down the road. <laughs>
0: yeah. Do you do you even if taking sort of Islamic finance out of it, do you see a world in the future where you get a lot of adoption on say Umar from even like non-Islamic customers uh, who who want to pursue sort of debt-free fi- uh interest-free financing? Sorry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that's that's what we are trying to also explain to people. You know, Islamic finance is not about the religion per se. I mean, like, obviously, if you're Muslim, it's it's Islamic finance, right? If you're not Muslim, it's more ethical finance. It's, uh, again, it's based on justice. It's, more, it's based about it's all about transparency. It's all about having skin in the game. So um, I think you're trying to educate people about, you know, what Islamic finance actually stands for. I mean, by doing that, I think you can bring and being a lot of people that are non-Muslims, right? Even in our case, we have users who are non-Muslims. And um, I think, which is why I think like 25%, like if, if Islamic finance gets 25% of the total financial assets penetration, uh, they're just the Muslims. But I think it should be higher than that. If you just understand the Islamic finance principles, again, it's just more ethical.
0: Say, in a in DeFi world, right, How, do yeah. you think there's a possibility that people could earn similar returns uh, issuing Islamic debt compared to, like, your standard interest-bearing debt?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you can earn the same return. In some cases, it can be higher. Uh, like, for example, in our case, it's quite interesting because we have not been... Because we don't have a fixed cost of capital, right, we don't raise debt it's all based on profit sharing. So we have not been as impacted by the rising interest rates. I think this is something which is quite quite interesting. Like for us, you know, in our business, we haven't really been impacted by, you know, what happened like over the last six months, the increase in interest rate. Because again, it's, it's, we share the profits with investors. We don't have fixed cost of funds. But again, you can still generate the same, the same returns, which is again, like uh, for you as a non-Muslim, you probably don't really care if it's share compliant or not. Um, but you do, if you can still generate the same returns and if you also believe that, if if you also believe that interest is evil, then, you know, you might want to contribute to this ecosystem, right? Um, which is why I think we, we want to position ourselves as really building an interest-free sort of society, interest-free community. Um, and then, yeah, it is Sharia compliant by default, right, if you understand, if you look at the product, but then you don't have to be a Muslim to use our protocol. You just have to believe in the in the idea.
0: I think it's something that's really interesting about MENA, and I'm, I'm sure you found this running, Umarat, right? if you look at, like, a lot of the the those charts of countries, I think it's Chainalysis that norm, normally publishes them, where you've got, say, like, your top 10 countries are for crypto penetration. It tends to be maybe, I think it's... A split between Southeast Asian countries like Philippines and Vietnam, and then a lot of Sub-Saharan African countries like uh, Nigeria, uh, et al. Uh, the interesting thing, obviously, all have all have very low usage of traditional banking products, uh, under penetration of uh, banking uh, services, and and similar numbers in in a lot of cases to the Middle East. Uh, but a lot of the Middle Eastern countries just aren't showing up in sort of those high crypto penetration charts a why do you think that is and and b sort of how, how do you see crypto adoption being bootstrapped in the middle east in particular
1: yeah um so i mean i'm based in dubai right so but dubai might be a bit different from the rest of the mina i think you live in dubai you're sort of living in, in a bubble obviously here i think crypto adoption is is booming more than i guess anywhere else in the world but then yeah, if you look at, if you, if you go beyond UAE, probably the adoption hasn't been as great. Um, which I think, um, again, it's, it's a matter of, you know, educating those people. I think like, for example, for us, we are looking to partner with like, exchanges, with other people who like focus on educating people about crypto, why you should care. I think, yeah, but it, it is an interesting opportunity, you know, bringing those people. Like one thing is working with people who already have bank accounts, right? For them it's, you know, going from, having a bank account uh, to crypto might not be as big of a uh, like step change. But if you are, if you don't have a bank account and now you can like access funds by using crypto, you can like generate yield using crypto. I mean, I mean, obviously that's, that's the most exciting uh, use case. So I think in general, I mean, I'm, I'm very bullish obviously on the region. Um, I think Dubai is doing all the right things to bring people bullish into the space. Uh, obviously, the regulations are quite uh, c- favorable for crypto. Uh, I do still think that right now it's still mostly a lot of noise, uh, not so much real building happening uh, in UAE, uh, but I think it's going to change, right? Again, keep you see people coming from Asia, from Europe, from the US, uh, building projects here. The, the rest of the region will just sort of follow Dubai. and. Yeah, the fact that this is very young population, we have all those people and just entering that age, where you know they have some capital to invest. So it's just gonna be more and more capital flowing into crypto, and then eventually, you know, hopefully, we can really um, get those unbanked people into the into the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, back back to a bit more about your experience as a founder in the space. Obviously, you you began uh at the very beginning of this podcast by saying that even even when you began Iman, you were by no means an Islamic finance expert. And even though you've you've been in the web three space for a while, I'm uh, not necessarily say a crypto development expert. Uh where where have been the biggest learning curves for you as as a DeFi founder? And then also how how do you go about sort of filling any knowledge gaps that you have along the way?
1: Yeah, I think um uh yeah obviously I don't have technical background Um, my co-founder does, you know, he has been building the DeFi space for ever since, even I think before it was called DeFi. So that has helped. Um, otherwise, I mean, there are some things that I still, I'm still learning, right? Even like on the, I mean, like we don't have an experience, for example, I don't have an experience building a community like in web three, right? We've done that quite well in web two. We haven't done that in web three yet. We are just starting to do that. Um, but I think, yeah, a lot of those lessons from Web 2 can be can be translated to um, to Web 3. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, obviously, Crypto is just what I like the most about uh, Web 3. It's just, it's so much more collaborative than, I think, like, traditional finance or even traditional, like, like, tech ecosystem, just everyone. You always see ways you can work with, like, other protocols, other projects. You can learn from them. You know, we can exchange. You can, you can f- always find a way to, to cooperate. Um, so yeah, overall, I mean, it's, uh, it's been, it's been, it's been a journey. <laughs> I mean, but I think yeah, having a technical co-founder co- 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 has helped. Um, and then I think being on this intersection of crypto, fintech, um, make makes sense considering what we are building, right? We're not being like a purely on-chain like you know traditional DeFi protocol. We deal with real assets, so you don't actually probably, if I was coming just from crypto background, I think my experience might have been detrimental, right? is coming from like real world finance, fintech background.
0: Yeah. And and I guess outside of DeFi, outside of what you guys are building with Uma, uh, what's really exciting you and interesting you in Web3 at the moment?
1: Um, Well, I would say I'm still extremely excited about Bitcoin. I think to me, Bitcoin is still the king. And I think things that are, I wouldn't say, I don't know if I'm i I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, I guess, anymore, but I think I'm still extremely excited about what's happening on Bitcoin, even like some of those ways of scaling Bitcoin, you know, through rollups, I mean, or uh, different side chains. I think it's quite, quite exciting. Otherwise, of course, I think I'm mostly looking for solutions that can sort of benefit our protocol. I mean, which can be anything that really helps to make it more decentralized, helps to minimize like the levels of trust required uh, for protocol participants so but even like uh, I'm still excited about decentralized stable coins I think we should not be we, sh- uh, we should not be reliant on your circle on tether we should be we should be still building uh over collateralized obviously decentralized stable coins um and then there's some things like using zero knowledge proofs for like KYC purposes, I think it's also exciting. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I'm honestly like, even like governance, I think just studying different models of on-chain governance. That's something I'm also researching. So, I mean, there are so many things happening, right? You just cannot, unfortunately you just, you can only, you only have 24 hours in a day and you still need to sleep sometimes.
0: Yeah. And, and focus on your own project. I guess it it leaves a lot of limited time between that. And among those, are there sort of any of those tools that you're looking to implement with UMA or any, anything in particular that you've used uh, in the UMA development process that you've found that really unlocked a lot of, a lot of growth or advancement technologically for you guys?
1: Um, probably, I mean, this stage, you know, we are still at the like, pretty early stage, so the building MVP stage. We are still exploring a few ways. Obviously, we do want to make it to, let's say, we want to start with the basics, right? We want to just test the product make sure there is, a, you know, there is an appetite for that, uh, have our users test the product and then make it more complex. So we don't need to, for example, um, the role of technologies we could potentially we could be, we could be using, right, for example, for, for KYC purposes, for kind of tokenizing some of those uh, off-chain assets. But again, at this stage, we just want to make it as simple as possible because like, at the end of the day, users don't really, like, I'm not, might not necessarily be as excited about those technologies as we are and yeah we, we have limited resources right so uh for now basically just focused on getting the first product version of the product out in the market yeah um be-
0: before i leave you i think there's quite a pertinent question to ask and that is like obviously as someone who's working on real world use cases uh out outside market price action obviously isn't necessarily a focus of yours um but it is something that would definitely affect i guess any protocol how do you sort of drain that noise out and then also keep I guess your customers focused on what you're building and trusting in what you're building uh, at a time when I guess external trust in crypto is I guess very fairly as well at at almost all-time lows.
1: Yeah no I mean price-wise yeah I guess I don't really care much about what's happening in the market Um, Mm. I think think I still have I'm not a trader right I'm not trying to time the market I'm more of a holder. I think um yeah, I think now, actually, it it is, I think it's a pretty good timing for us, for what we are building. I think there is a lot more appetite for projects that are, you know, let's say more sustainable, not necessarily correlated to, you know, what's happening in the crypto market. Um, so I think, like, during the bull market, you know, people were not that excited about generating 10 to 20% APY in, in you know, in DeFi. Now you know he yeah. will you, be really happy with your ten percent because you can like, like if you go to Ava you compound what you can get two percent. So I would rather own US treasuries than invest in like through Ave or compound. So but um what we do, you know, bringing that yield on chain, you know, giving crypto investor exposure to um you know real world assets, I think um I see a lot of appetite both from the investors you're speaking to, potential users. Um so yeah, I mean for everything else here again it's it's just noise. It doesn't really matter. Like it's bear market is perfect time to be building, so uh yeah.
0: Yeah, no very very, very positive answer. And and I've got a, a bit more of a random one. Uh a bit of a lighter question as well, uh to leave you on and that that is if you could meet uh anyone dead or alive, uh who, who would you have a dinner with?
1: Well of course I mean I think that's I mean, Satoshi Nakamoto, that would be the easy answer, right? <laughs> if he knew who he was, yeah, I would do everything to <laughs> to have a dinner with him or her or I don't know, or them,
0: whoever they are. You are you sure you're not a Bitcoin maximalist?
1: Well, I feel like Bitcoin is money, right? Everything else. Is Bitcoin has no competition. That's to me not a Ethereum ultrasound money proponent. <laughs> I just <laughs> to me it's it's uh, it's a meme that almost as bad as like you know stock to flow model uh, for Bitcoiners. I been mean, I've been quite disappointed about you know against um, the Bitcoin culture lately. But I still think it's Bitcoin has its unique unique place and um, yeah I just. It, it 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 will never go away. That's that's something I'm very positive about.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and then, but before we finish up, do you have any last pitch for Uma Finance or anything you want the audience to know?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, jo- join us uh, if you want to contribute to an interest-free society. Or if you want to rebuild the financial system um, on the interest-free standard, please please join us. Uh, whether you're a developer or participate in the community or you're an investor, just feel free to send me a note. All
0: right. Thank thank you very much for coming on, Mark. Um, absolute pleasure uh, hearing from yourself uh, and learning more a bit about Islamic finance and DeFi uh, through UMA Finance. Um,
1: yeah. Thank you, Arsh. It's been a pleasure. Thanks
0: so much for listening to that latest episode of Hans' Protocol Weekly. I deeply hope you enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date with our podcast every week, follow the firm or myself on Twitter at Hansa underscore network or at AHR Whitford. Even better, uh, if you're a best case scenario where this episode has motivated you to start your own protocol, I'd recommend heading to our website at Hansa.network and reaching out to the Accelerator and Investments team through our founder forms there. I've been your host, Archie Whitford. Thanks for tuning in and look forward to next time.